Hello, I'm Pippa Kelly. Welcome to the third series of Well I Know Now, in which I talk to people affected by dementia in various ways. Since launching my podcast during our first COVID lockdown last year, I've chatted to people living with dementia, people caring for loved ones, to artists, authors, broadcasters, cartoonists and actors, representing, recording and charting the lives of those with the condition. I've spoken to the chief executives and founders of dementia organisations, big and small. And each and every one of my guests has taught me something new about the condition and how it affects us all, about myself, about life and what's important in it. We've mulled over what we know now that we didn't before dementia came into our lives. My mum lived with vascular dementia for her last 10 years. Were I to sum up one of the main things that I know now that I didn't this time last year, and what a strange, unsettling and isolating year it's been, it's the huge power of connections, of real skin-to-skin human connections, of bear hugs and whispers of touches, and what we mean to each other and give to each other just by being there. It's often the seemingly smallest things that matter most. It was a poet, Sylvia Plath, who wrote, Well, I know now a little more about how much a simple thing like a snowfall can mean to a person. Dementia teaches you this too. My guests this week are two people who met by chance, through the spin of a wheel, one might say, in Saxe Fellow, a cycling shop in Suffolk. It was 2018 and one of them, Deb, had recently moved to the market town of Saxmundham which she admits she'd never heard of and could barely pronounce when she and her husband took early retirement to move there. The second is Peter, a Suffolk man through and through who took over his father's timber business and for whom the trees and woods of this county are as familiar as old friends and family. He's also a man who loves cycling and who, aged 50, was diagnosed with dementia. Yes, that's right, 50. Deb, you no one in her new neighbourhood, and very little about dementia, other than holding the common mistaken belief that it only came with old age, liver spots and false teeth. Peter, slim, fit and living with Alzheimer's when she meets him, not only blows apart this myth, but offers to show her some local cycling routes. And so an unlikely friendship begins. Like all the best friendships, it's mutually reciprocal, hugely rewarding for both and based on trust. It's been captured in a remarkable book, brilliantly entitled Slow Puncture. It tells of their year together and in doing so lays bare Peter Berry's tumultuous Alzheimer's journey in his words. So they are co-authors, but it is Deb Bunt who has written it. Peter simply can't. What's more, he will never read it. He will never, in fact, read his own story. For Peter, who in the early days of his diagnosis came seriously close to suicide, not once but twice, cycling becomes his salvation. With every turn of the pedals, I cycled away from dementia and became the man I used to be and not the man I was fast becoming, he says. Having written his trusty old Claude Butler from Aberystwyth to Aldborough, raising £6,000 for Young Dementia UK, he plans a new challenge, this time with his new pedalling partner, Deb. It is to traverse the four counties of East Anglia and to give it an extra twist, Peter will cover the miles perched one and a half metres above the ground 
on a penny farthing? Of course you will. He's Peter Berry. The more the pair cycle together over the months, the more the trust builds between them, and the more Deb learns not just about Peter and his dementia monster, his ways of coping and his hidden demons, but about herself. Peter shows her the joys to be found in living in the moment, and of celebrating the journey for what it is, even if you lose your way and end up, as it were, in Orford instead of Framlingham. It is perhaps a cruel paradox that Peter's dementia, which is chipping away at his world and shrinking it, has created a whole new world for me, Deb writes. While in his turn, in his inimitable way, Peter tells her that while the condition's taken so much from him, his income, his self-esteem, his future, he has taken a lot from it. I live every day. I enjoy every day, even if I might forget it moments later. They say you only live once, but that's rubbish. You only die once. You live every day. And that's what I fully intend to do. So perhaps now's a good moment to mention that the subtitle of their book, Slow Puncher, is Living Well with Dementia. So, Peter Berry and Deb Bunt down our various phone lines from Suffolk to Sussex, which is where I am, a very warm welcome to Well, I Know Now. Hi, Pippa. Lovely to talk to you. Hello, hello. Wonderful to talk to you. So first, um, I just want to say what a wonderful book you've, you've both written. So huge credit to you, Peter, for placing your life literally in Deb's hands, as you did. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and well done to you, Deb, for conjuring up in about 150 pages, I think it was, the essence of Peter Berry, which is no mean feat. If you don't mind me saying, Peter, you come across as a fabulous, funny and ever so slightly bonkers character with a real <laughs> skill for summing up in seemingly throwaway one-liner some really quite deep and profound truths. And I'm going to talk to you, Deb, in a minute about what your friendship's given you, because I think this equality in the friendship is one of its most appealing aspects. Um, But first, Peter, I want to turn to you and ask you straight up what cycling has given to you, what it means to you with your dementia. Cycling has actually given me my life, really. Without cycling, I, I don't think that I would be the person I am today. It's something that, um, well, it just makes me feel me again. And I'm sure that Debs will probably, and my wife will probably second this, that I think straighter after I've been cycling or while I'm cycling. It's, uh, I, I don't think I could live without the simple bicycle, if I'm really honest. I have often said that I lose my direction in life, but the bicycle is my compass. and gives me that direction back again. Is that, I mean, I'm sure it's a number of things. You say at one point in the book, I cycle down dementia, which is one of your sort of brilliant Peter Berry um, (laughs) isms. So I guess, I don't know, it's to do with, as we all know, if you run or if you cycle, it's the rhythm and the moving forward. But you've always loved cycling, haven't you? I have. um, I first started cycling in a, I suppose, a, a very semi-professional way. I used to do some time trials in the very late 70s. So it's all been part of my life. But I think that when the dementia came along and, and when I was diagnosed or when we were diagnosed as a family, it's something that I just took. And it's a great medicine for actually I suppose, getting away from my ugly little dementia monster who, um, you know, everybody should be able to get away from from their monsters, whatever they are. Um, Mm. It gives me a sense of independence Mm. as well. It gives me a sense of I can actually move from one place to another 
without the aid of anybody else as such. I can do it myself. And because I suppose dementia takes so much over a period of time, the bicycle then gives me something back. Yes, yes. And so now, Deb, to turn to you a bit, because you, again, in the book say, I mean, Peter can cycle on his own, and I completely understand that. It gives you wonderful freedom, Peter. But Mm. there's a sentence where you say... It is mutually reciprocal because neither of you could cycle perhaps the distances you do without each other. Deb, what does it give you? What does your friendship with Peter and your cycling with Peter give you? It's given me my part of Suffolk, I suppose. I don't know whether it's common knowledge, but I have no sense of direction. So if I were let out on my own, I would probably cycle around the block several times and then come home. So cycling with somebody who knows this area really well has opened it up for me. And apparently there are things called trees and birds in Suffolk. We don't have those in London. So it's opened up a new area for me to look at. And it's given me a sense of well-being. Uh, I used to run. Mm. I don't really run anymore. But I find I can cycle for hours. So it's given me a little bit of youth back and given me security because I'm with somebody who actually knows one end of a bicycle from the other Mm. and who can look after me. It's given me a sense of my retirement is what I wanted it to be. Mm. And I didn't really know what I wanted it to be when I retired, but this is it. Peter has given me Suffolk in a nutshell. Yes, that's interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of people with dementia say to me, Peter, that one thing that goes, which you've talked about from your life when you're diagnosed with dementia, is a sense of purpose because you often, particularly if you're younger, like you have to lose your job and Mm. your independence and you have huge financial implications, which we'll come to actually in a minute. Yes. So... It's given you a sense of purpose because you give something to Deb. And Deb, I suppose it's given you a sense of purpose too because it is always difficult when you have a big change like a retirement or whatever to know what you're going to do with your life next. Sorry, one, one of the things that, that it has done, and I think it's, it's an important thing, that because dementia strips the sort of here and now or it does from me personally, when I cycle with Debs around the area that I have spent my entire life and just about Mm. every woodland in this area I have worked in, Mm. I can talk to somebody about the past, about what has happened. Mm. And that's key to be able to do that every day. If somebody asks me something that is relative to the here and now, I can't really relate to that. I can't have in-depth conversations about the politics and maybe Mm. even what the weather was yesterday and what I've had for breakfast, but I can go around and cycle around the countryside and probably go over the same story over and over again, but hey, it doesn't matter as far as I'm concerned, but it's it's great to have that sense of purpose and that sense of you're actually, how can I put this, you're actually talking to somebody, you're actually entertaining somebody, you're actually Mm. doing Mm. what normal people do, if that makes any sense. It makes complete sense. It makes complete sense. No, I can see that. So actually, a lot of factors have come together, haven't they, in this friendship? It's because it's new Mm. to Deb, but very familiar, as I say, you know, it's almost like friends and family. And actually, just to quickly go on to the story bit before I move, because that was so interesting, because... When you say that you might repeat the stories, Peter, there was a lovely quote from Deb in the book where you talked about the various sort of layer upon layer of subtext and meaning that there are in people's 
often repeated stories. I mean, we all repeat stories. My husband's always repeating his uh, school boy <laughs> stories, you know, and I'm sitting there desperately trying to look like the interested wife. Um, but your line, Deb, was with people with dementia, their stories contain the essence of who they were before dementia. So it's always worth listening that little bit harder. Deb, I think that's a really, really interesting sentence. Do you want to just sort of unpack that a bit without getting too deep, actually? Yes, I suppose at two levels. One, it's worth listening harder because it may have a different meaning depending where you're at at that time. Or in the telling of it, the person telling it may be in a different emotional place. And so you get a different mm. sense of something. It's all too easy to say, yeah, 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 you've told me. And there's no point in saying that. I just think hearing something again resonates in a different way with me, depending on my mood and where mm. I am and mm. what I've actually heard from what Peter has said. I might hear something totally different the second mm. time around than mm. I heard the first time around. Mm. And I think that's what I meant. Yes. It's just I learn more about Peter and I learn more about myself by my understanding of what he said. Yes. Yeah, I just thought that was fascinating because I'm so interested in stories. I really like that line. Yeah, Deb, there's another very important lesson that you've learned from Peter and his dementia, isn't there? And this is, as many people with dementia tell me, the pleasure to be found in living in the moment, just taking time to really dwell in the moment. A lot of people with dementia talk to me about, you know, the fact that they now live in the moment. And although it can be very difficult, it has also given them something through that. There are positives to it. And Deb, I think you found that too, didn't you? So what's your take on the living in the moment? I guess it was something I never thought about until having met Peter. And now looking back, I think my whole adult life, I've been moving on from one project to another, never really knowing what I want to do. So for example... I once hopped on a bus from Streatham and went to Kathmandu, right. which sounds a little bit random. A little bit. But I, yeah, I, I did do that. <laughs> but instead of enjoying each country, because we, we went overland. So here's an example. Instead of enjoying Europe mm. and then the Middle East and then the, you know, then India and Kathmandu, I was always mm. thinking ahead mm. to the next place. So I remember very little of it. And then in every job I've had, I've always been restless for the next one. If I go to the theatre, I've always been ready for the next act or if I'm reading a book mm. it's never taking mm. what I've got and sort of like a fine wine mm. you know savoring it. about in my in my mouth yeah exactly and having listened to Peter I think and I still really don't do it a lot but there are moments when we're out on our bikes and I'm not worried about the kids or the grandkids or, or my husband or mm. them, whatever there is a moment mm. occasionally when I'm just mm. savoring the moment of mm. being outside being on a bike and I can feel it it goes I mean Peter lives in the moment mm. through necessity I'm still mm. trying to do it but when I do it it's, it's that kind of quality I don't mm. think it's zen but it's some sort of transcendental moment when I, mm. I think wow and I want I want more of that and we don't do that we're always worrying about what's coming or you know reflecting on what what's gone and yeah. never appreciating what we've got in that moment and it's an amazing thing when it does happen and I want it to happen more and the most <coughs> important thing actually, is that Peter has given me the fulfilment of any ambition I ever have had in my life, which was to be a writer. That's from Peter. So kind of not just the living in the moment, but where I am now, you know, I, I, that, that's what I always wanted to do. I didn't have any ambition, but meeting Peter has made that ambition, the one ambition I had, come true. I think what it also what it does is having a friendship like I've got with Debs means that it gives the basic elements 
to build living well with dementia. Mm. It's, it's actually the core of what living well means because somebody is listening. It's, mm. it's, that's the foundation. Mm. And sometimes we go to large organizations for care packages or whatever, which is absolutely fine. But sometimes the real essence of it all and the real core of living well with dementia is a lot closer to home with good friends and good family. And sometimes we miss that little, mm. that little bit. Gosh, Peter, yes, that, that's really interesting and so true. Uh, just to go back to what you brushed on earlier about the implications of being diagnosed at such a young age. I think that is important. You know, when you're still working and the financial implications around that, do you want to just expand on that a bit? One of the key things is, and a lot of people don't actually think of this, because dementia affects older people, people think it's, it's retiring age and the system is geared up and you have a pension and you have an income and you probably won't have a mortgage. But in our case, or in most people's cases, you have financial commitments and you can't go out and earn a living because most employers don't want to employ somebody with memory issues. And that's a fact. So you're left with no pension, no income. The benefit system is really tailored to an older generation. And we found that very difficult because we paid our mortgage uh, flawlessly up until the last couple of years. Um, we'd also paid in an insurance for that. <laughs> the thing is, they wouldn't give us any extension or give us any financial help because I had a terminal condition, uh, dementia. But on the other hand, the insurance wouldn't pay out to pay the remaining couple of £3,000 or whatever it was off the mortgage because the terminal illness wasn't condition listed as one of wasn't them. listed. It wasn't, no. We had a policy that was a terminal illness policy, but because Alzheimer's wasn't actually written How on there, then it wasn't valid. And mm. um, that was a, a very, 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 very difficult time. And I actually worked in an environment in my mm. sawmill with lots of heavy machinery and, and things going on that was really unsafe for somebody with dementia to pump all the money that we had into our mortgage to finish it off because we ran the risk at that time of losing our house completely utterly and totally wrong and that added to the pressures of the diagnosis and the depression and and everything else of course you say this is so good up to older people aren't they peter of retirement age but let's go right back now way back before your diagnosis Right back to when you were very little, and you and your dad, because it was your dad's timber business, wasn't it? And you and your dad were very close. And your dad, of course, also had Alzheimer's. So just tell us a bit about your childhood. Yeah, um, I had a very, very, a very good childhood. I have uh, four brothers, no sisters. And my father started his timber business in 1947. His father was killed by a tree, funny enough. And my father had nine brothers and sisters and he was the oldest one and he sort of inherited the bicycle and the crosscut saw and the axe and had to go out and earn money in the only way that he knew how in order to feed the family because there was no government help in those days. And as things progressed, my father built the business up. So, yeah, and he he done very, very well in business. And, um, of course, 
I left school at 15 and a half and went straight into the family business, which I was immensely proud of. In later life, he made some quite terrible mistakes within the business and financial mistakes, which left the business in a very unstable situation. And me and my wife came along and we rescued the business. And um, I brought it from the doldrums right down back up again, um, sawmilling and, and that sort of thing. And then, of course, the wheel of life turned full turn and um, I got Alzheimer's as well. And um, very, very same thing happened. But there was nobody to rescue it from me, I'm afraid. So that was um, that. But my father still worked with me when I took the business over. He was still a key part of it. Even though his memory was very poor, he knew a piece of wood, as we say in Suffolk. Yes. And he, he, really, he really knew his stuff. And I got on ever so well with him. And I think that I probably understood his condition maybe more than I actually realised. Um, I think I understand him more now he's gone. But I suppose really him coming to work with me a few days a week, mm. that was like my bicycle. It gave, mm. it got him away from mm. his dementia. He could, he could that. become what he always was. Mm. And um, he was a very fit, healthy man. He was also a very well-respected man within this local area. And do you know, people still talk about my father now, you know, mm. uh, Jim Berry. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Very well-respected, well, within this county and many other counties because he dealt with people all over Britain. Mm, that comes across actually in the book how um, we're in danger of having so many sort of imageries here, aren't we? But the way you've put your roots down in, you know, you and your father and the woods and the trees, it's very much sort of entwined in your lives, isn't it? That comes across. It was yeah. a lovely moment where, because you and Deb, when you go on your cycle rides, there generally seems to be cake and coffee involved, isn't there? <laughs> Somewhere <laughs> along the way. <laughs> which I know you neutralise because you burn off so many calories. Um, but there's a lovely well, moment. I don't know if you realise it's actually the law for cycling that if you go out you do any miles, you have to have coffee and cake. If you don't, well, there is a long prison sentence and nobody wants that. Oh, I know that. That's in the Coffee and Cake uh, uh, Act 19... 19- 99 isn't it yeah subclause there's a similar one for when you're out shopping actually but yeah okay um i've completely lost my train of thought now peter um i'm sorry i've messed the right up there no actually i know what it was because you're talking because you have these lovely escapes this freedom you, you say goodbye to your dementia monster who you've actually you know given this name to and drawn so you've got this separate Thing away from you but then when you and Deb have your coffee and your cake I remember once Deb saying or writing in the book that you sort of touch the wood of the table it's very you know you're sort of stroking it almost it's so deep within you this love of wood and I thought yeah I can absolutely get that and how soothing it is it's a lovely medium anyway wood but for you Peter and anyway when you're together you also have opened up, this goes to the trust of your relationship, over the months, years now, you've opened up to Deb. Tell me about this showman, Peter, whereby you put on this, but you put on your sort of ringmaster's coat, as it were, and you come out and you're great, but then you've opened up little bits of yourself to Deb, sometimes just as you're cycling. I see you sort of cycling in parallel and suddenly you'll mm-hmm. say something just to show her the little bit of fear that you understandably feel or 
yes. whatever. Yes. I mean, this is all very interesting too. I think the thing that a lot of people forget, excuse the pun, is that when we get diagnosed with dementia, it takes probably three, four, five years before somebody is actually diagnosed with this condition. Correct, yeah. Over that time, we as people create strategies, coping strategies, ways of getting around things, because that's what we all do in, in life. Mm. And I think that we take that further and you try to, well, I personally, I have this thing where if I can, if I can have a conversation with somebody for, for five or 10 minutes in the street and they walk away and they have no idea that I have dementia, that's like in football, Peter three, dementia zero. I've won the day. Mm. There was a time where I was a bit embarrassed to say that I had dementia. There was a time where I was ashamed of it to a degree. Mm. That has gradually changed a bit now to this game, this battle, this ongoing game that I have with myself and my dementia monster that, you know, I can actually hoodwink people into believing that I haven't got the condition. I can prove to them. But then when you get to know somebody, there is this element of, you know, I think you ought to let people in a little bit. And sometimes it's easier to let a friend in to your feelings than it is a partner, because mm. a partner is really holding your hand in this journey, whereas a friend is walking very close beside you. And that is the difference. Mm. And I think, and also, for somebody like Debs to understand dementia and be aware of what it's actually about, they have to really step into somebody's world. You have to, I suppose, dementia is like having a curtain around you. And every now and again, you've got to open that curtain and just let people step into the shadows of dementia, the, the, the nasty, horrible bits of it, in order for them to understand what it's really like. I used to get a lot of people who would say to my father, we would go up, I would go and see my father every Saturday in Framlingham, where he lived, and we would walk up the market hill and the stalls and go and have um, coffee and cake. And uh, people would have conversations with him and they would say to me, he's all right, nothing wrong with Jim. Mm. I thought he'd got Alzheimer's, ain't nothing about him. Well, this is a key thing. If you ask anybody, and I, I'm going to say 99.9% .9 people with dementia, how are you today? Oh, I'm all right. I'm mm, fine. Mm, mm. It's that showman that a majority of us have in ourselves that we can't keep saying to people, oh, do you know what? I had a terrible day yesterday and this and that. It's just, I'm fine. And people seem to say that you have dementia. Mm. Most of the people I think with dementia are, how shall I put this? happy <laughs> mm, you mm, know um, mm, mm. that's i mean but, um, so well put. gosh i don't even know if if, if that was the question the question is totally no, gone the, i don't the, know the, i've been rumbling very, on about something completely no, different it's really important especially the bit at the beginning where you were saying that the difference between opening up a bit more to family and opening up to a friend because mm. that is in the book as well about how you know you're in fact, your wife, Teresa, it was a diagnosis on the family, and you've got a daughter too, Kate, and how, for all of you to begin with, it was it was shocking. You know, it is a shock, and, and in fact, for you and Teresa, it became your sort of guilty secret, which later thought was a huge mistake. You should have been more open about it. But yes, when yeah. Deb asked you, what does Teresa's dementia look like? You said, I am Teresa's dementia monster. 
you know, you are your yes. wife's dementia monster. I mean, so in I a way, it, your yeah. your friendship with Deb kind of relieves Teresa a bit because, you know, she's got it all the time, hasn't she? Another thing you say is that you live with dementia, she suffers with it. Yes. Your wife. Yes. Yeah, this is the key thing. I mean, we, people who, who live with this condition, we live in our own little world, I suppose, really, if that's not too silly a thing to say, but we don't see the struggles that we have quite so much as somebody outside you know it's um mm, mm, <laughs> they're mm. the ones my, my my wife remembers everything that exactly. I can't do exactly. I just seem to remember mm. the things that I have done and um it's a different world mm. uh, being outside looking in is, is very different from mm. the inside looking out. Mm. so Deb what do you make of all that because when Peter does open up to you and I know sometimes you say I've got a feeling he's going to say something I don't want to hear because you know him quite well now. How, yeah. how do you take it? And bearing in mind you were somebody who really, without being rude, knew so little about dementia when you met Peter. When he does open up about the fears and what have you, how do you take that? There are so many different emotions because I see it as a good thing because, as Peter said, sometimes it's easier to talk to a person who you're not married to. So I think he needs to talk about these things and I'm really happy to be that, that person who can listen. And sometimes it makes me feel really sad because I don't always want to hear what he has to say. But it also makes me really privileged that we have that sort of friendship where he can. And I, it, there's so many different emotions going on for me. But generally, I just, it's odd. I just see Peter as Peter, the, mm. the man who kind of looks after me when we're cycling. I, I know he is living with dementia. I know that. And some of the things that he does say, you know, do shake me. But usually when we're out, I just see Peter, my friend. And I think that's what I like to hang on to as well. Yeah. Is it easier sometimes to hear it? Because you're, I'm thinking when, you know, your children are teenagers and it's often easier to talk when you're in the car. I think sort of child <laughs> psychologists say this because you're both facing forward. I've often thought of you when I was reading the book as, you know, as I say, cycling along parallel and uh, sometimes it's easier. I should be to so talk. lucky to keep up. <laughs> yes no but you're right I mean quite, quite often I am cycling behind Peter um, mm. which is a totally different perspective but you know you're right when we are side by side on deserted roads you have to look ahead but it is mm. easier to talk and there's something about the movement of cycling that that's quite comforting too so maybe mm. that creates a better environment for Peter to talk but it, it is an honour I know it sounds really cliched and, and hackneyed in my professional life Part of my work was to, to listen to people and unpick what was going on. Yes, just and explain what you were thought, actually before you retired, Deb, just briefly. you were a... I was a parenting practitioner working with what they terribly call difficult to engage families. Mm. So with families where there maybe were multiple issues, you know, lack of education for the children, mm. poverty, um, inadequate accommodation, drug use, alcohol use the whole sort of things that you read in the paper. So my job would be to work with the parents to unpick their problems, mm. to help them parent their children in a way which would stop their children from killing other people, basically. Mm. So you, you have to get somebody to trust you, to talk to you. And mm. when you did that, you did feel that you'd achieved... It was a privilege that people were prepared to open up to you. But more often than not, that didn't really happen. So it feels a bit of an irony that the things that were meant to happen in my professional life have now happened now that I'm retired and, and that Peter does feel he can trust me. And I suppose the, the skills perhaps I acquired are now being put to good use. Yes. Um, but it's not an unequal relationship. It's not like I've come in and 
I'm Peter's counsellor. No, I don't mean it like not. that. I just mean no. I provide that ear that he feels he can tip all his stuff into, absolutely. which is not maybe a very absolutely. nice image. You, yeah. you, bo- you both talk about uh, different parts of being held. You know, you sort of hold Peter yeah. safe and he holds you safe because otherwise, as you say, you'd be wandering around Framling, wouldn't you, all day? Um, <laughs> you know, and, and um, so it is very mutually reciprocal. Peter, I'm interested too, just to go back, because you've had the most tremendous journey. I know this is kind of hackneyed phrase, but I think there's not much better one. It's a bit like the Strictly Come Dancing journey from being so low. And if it's not too difficult, what was it? You seriously got close to taking your own own life twice. I'm only going mm-hmm. to this difficult place because I think anybody who's got to mention this would be perhaps helpful for them because you got there. Yes, expl- yes. Explain the first one with the railway because your take on that was so brilliant. It was dark but humorous. Yeah, um, I, it's a funny thing, really, and I think that... It's important to point out at this time that Mm. it was an extremely dark time, but Mm. Mm. I don't mind talking about it because I feel as though there was some good that has come out of it because Mm. other people are probably going down that that route. Exactly. And I think that it's, it's so important to let people know that, you know what, you can live well and that's something that I never realized in the early days had I realized that then that probably wouldn't have been that scenario I suppose I I had this idea that everything was going to be dark and gloomy I was going to be a dribbling wreck and my life was over did I want my family to see this did I want them to see me like that is it best to get it over, get it done, and then over a period of time, they could move on? A very selfish thing in the end. And I think from what I can recall of that, I don't think the train came. Um, it, it, you know, it, did, it didn't come. Uh, that was what's so funny. Was, there was a points failure. It was, it, was, it was so so good that you can rely on the rail system to not be um, on time, you know, so hurrah for them. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that was um, the failed attempt. But, of course, I had a, another go later on. I believe it was the next day, I think, or it might even be the first, the same day. Do you know, I can't honestly mm, recall mm. because... I suppose a lot of the details one tries to blank out. But um, the second time, it was up to me at that time. And I do remember thinking to myself, how many other people are going through this? Mm. And I know what it's like to be at this point. Maybe I could help other people. And and Mm. I got thinking about that nobody was helping us. So somebody needed to help other people. And it again gave me a purpose. It gave mm. me the kick up the backside that I mm. needed at that time. And I thought, no, I thought I can't do this. And I didn't. And as a result, I have probably achieved more in my life since that day mm. than I did my whole life before. Mm. I certainly got that impression. Maybe not more, but but certainly you've achieved such a lot, Peter. I, I, because this brings I us to so. the point of at the time of diagnosis, how hopeless the system was yeah the system has has changed quite a bit and i think that i mean my knowledge of alzheimer's was very poor in my age group in actual fact i do recall that when the doctor said you know you have early onset alzheimer's i'm afraid to say 
my first thought in my mind was, oh, thank goodness for that. I thought it was something serious. Mm. You know, I thought mm. I'd got cancer of the brain or, mm. or, or something. It wasn't until we went away and we realised that what the outcome was going to be and, and how it was going to happen. And I, I also remember my father lasting oh, over 20 years with his Alzheimer's. Mm. I sort of thought, oh, you know, this might not be so bad. But then because the system wasn't as very good and it could still be better now, mm. we were left on our own and we yes. had everything to contend with. The business collapsing, how do we earn a living? Mm. What do we do? And it was all a nightmare, a very mm. depressing mm. nightmare. Mm. And um, you can see how easy it is mm. to, to pull the trigger or, or step off the cliff or, or yes. whatever, you know. Yes. But, um, yes. It's such a long-term solution, suicide, to a very... I think, short-term problem. Yes, yes. It's another one of your sayings, isn't it, that dementia is a complicated condition surrounded by simplicity. That's right, yes. Yeah, which I thought was very good. And we constantly, as individuals, the people around us, try to pick away at the complicated parts of dementia, and that's the wrong way. I know when we're going on to something different, but just to give you an example, if somebody said to me, oh, where have you cycled today? I've got no idea. That's the complicated part. Don't delve into that. If someone says to me, hey, did you have a good cycle ride today? Then I can answer that. That's mm. the simple part, you know. Mm, mm, mm. Well, can you answer this, Peter? Because obviously this is the most crucial question of all. How does one get up onto a penny farthing and off it? <laughs> well, actually, they're not as hard as people think, mm. to be perfectly honest with you. I mean, hard to um, well, no, it's not. They're actually, they're a very, very stable machine. There's a little step, which is on the frame, just above the small rear wheel. Right. And um, you put your left foot on the step, you scoot along holding the handlebars, and you only need to go about three or four feet forward and then just up onto the saddle and engage the pedals. Yeah, but now, how do you get your leg over the saddle? How do you get your leg over, Peter? <laughs> Well, you're coming up from you're coming up from the back. Okay, this is a this is the daytime podcast. Yes, we're descending into the carnival. <laughs> no, you actually, actually, how should we say? You actually mount the penny farthing from better. the back. <laughs> it's not getting any better, is it? Now? <laughs> but actually, I can actually teach somebody to get on and off a penny farthing in about a couple of hours. Believe it or not. And then I always say it'll take them another six months to learn how to really ride one. But once you get it, it's people say, oh, show me how you get on. And I think they expect some sort of funfair and trumpets and, and balloons and, and you just scoot along and, and smoothly get on. And people sort of go, oh, is that it? Oh, well, that was that well, was Because the saddle boring, looks you know? so high up. The saddle <laughs> looks so high up, doesn't it? I... It is, yeah. I mean, um, I can stand, I suppose, the saddle is just about where my armpit is um, yeah, when, exactly. I, when I stand up. Yeah, yeah but I suppose a little the platform The whole idea, helps. when they actually designed them in 1870-something, the idea was the bigger the front wheel, the further forward one could go on every full turn of the wheel mm. because they mm. never had gears. Mm. And it has no gears and no brakes. So, no, exactly. Um, well, and also back in the 19th century, there weren't any traffic lights. What happens when you get to a traffic light or something? How, how, do, you get um, to, how do you stop? You, obviously, you can, you can put your foot on the rear step and just freewheel along, and I use my, the heel of my right foot on the rear wheel as a brake. Gosh, OK, it's quite primitive. 
Oh, very, very much so. Yeah, yeah. And because you're not really going at great speeds, I mean, I can only average about 11 miles, 12 miles an hour on it. What I like about it is, is you have to focus on what you're doing. So you're mm. reading the road ahead. You're looking at the traffic lights and you're thinking, yeah, I think they're going to change and they change and everything is done in a very slow pace. Mm. And uh, I first started riding one when I was about 15, I think, just as a, a fun thing. So when I bought the penny farthing and decided to do the, the second challenge on it, when I put my foot on the rear step, scoot along, got on, I was so pleased because I hadn't forgotten how to do it. Mm-hmm. And it was just like riding a bike. Riding a bike. <laughs> <laughs> I had remembered. And as soon as I got on it, the first two turns of the pedals, I thought, yeah, I'm going to do a challenge with this. What can I do? How and, many, um, how many miles did you do on it? How many miles? I think it was 300 and... 20, I believe it was. Yeah. It was about 350, 360. Oh, three, 350, 360. That's right. Yes. And it how was. long yeah. did it take yeah. you? How many days did we do it, Debs? I can't we remember. Left on a, we left on a Sunday and we got back on a Friday. Wow. So, the best part of a week. The first challenge that I did across the country, I can remember that very well. And I was very, I had my finger on the pulse of who had donated money and where we were and where we were going to go. And I pretty much arranged a lot of it myself to a degree. But to give you an example of how dementia can create issues, I think over the year and then doing the next challenge, Mm. I remember very little about it. I remember that other people arranged it for me. Really, all I did was... I just got on the penny farthing and I followed people to the next point. And I had the easy bit, a strange degree. I really had no concept. And if somebody asked me now where we went, I know we did four counties, mm. but I can't remember any of the details. And yet the first challenge, I can remember where we stopped and I can remember where the worst place in the saddle was during that day, how many miles we did. Mm. It's it's there, but the mm. second one, I, I really mm. haven't. No. And Deb, you were on a on an orthodox normal bike. Yeah, a sensible bike, yes, with gears and brakes <laughs> and things like that. So what <laughs> did you do? Did, did, did you just have to cycle very slowly or did you wait? Did you wait for Peter to catch up? Well, there were a few <clears> of us who did the whole thing. So mm. we sort of had a, a rather sedate, regal uh, cycle ride through the counties, waving at our minions. Yeah. Um, one of our party, Mark, would go on ahead to a roundabout or a junction because it's actually easier for Peter not to stop and get off. So if yes. it was clear, Mark would wave Peter through and he'd go through. Yeah. But we all just slowed the pace down. It, and we, we did 50 miles a day, which actually on an ordinary bike is not a lot. It's a lot mm. on a penny well, farthing. It's not, for, it's not for you and Peter. It sounds a lot to me. One of the key things that people actually don't realise is that on a penny farthing, you're going the same speed up a hill as you are on the flat. So on the flat, we're doing about 11, 12, 13 miles an hour, and they're poodling along. But when it came to a hill, they would have to go down the gears. And, of course, I I would overtake them every time going up a hill. Brilliant. um, It's really annoying. They would then... Peering down from your lofty height. And Deb... Oh, yes, that's right, yes, waving at them, you know, (laughs) just uh, in a a very sort of regal manner. I can imagine that. (laughs) And, have you been on it? Have you ridden Peter's penny Um, farthing? Well... No, I'm a little bit clumsy. I'm a little bit accident prone, and I just think it would be a disaster. I mean, as well tried. as being quite comic, 
No, it's huge, Pippa. It's, it's mammoth. I know. Well, I, I know <laughs> Peter keeps much... trying to pretend that it's easy, but I, I think he's no, lying. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's really. I, I held it. I did hold it once while he had to do something. I held it, and it, it was heavy. Is but it? no, I wouldn't. Mm. I wouldn't even countenance trying to get on it. It would be a total catastrophe. Yeah. All my bones would be shattered, <laughs> and my self-esteem. And needless to say, the bike would not be rideable afterwards. And that's the most important thing. <laughs> of course. Thank you, Peter. Yes. Of course, of course. <laughs> and finally, then, another very important question that might have you wrangling a bit. But who thought up the brilliant title, Slow Puncture? Oh, I um, <clears throat> no, I can lie, can't I? Do you know what? <laughs> I have to hold my hands up. I wasn't going to call it that. I was going to call it It Could Happen to a Bishop, because Peter used what? to say that about his dad. It could happen to a bishop. Oh, yes. That's what Peter's father said. Yeah. And luckily, we bumped into somebody at a, a conference that Peter was talking at, and I was saying I'm trying to write this book. And he said, absolutely brilliant. Call it Slow Puncture. There we are. And he walked off. Oh. And I thought, damn, damn it. I want to take the credit, but I'm too honest. Uh, so <laughs> I didn't think of it. But I'm glad we bumped into this person who did. Yes, but everybody's you know, idea is somebody else's originally, isn't it? But you've yeah. turned there's, it into something. There's, there's one thing that um, I just want to throw into the mix here. We were talking Do. about friendship and that sort of thing earlier on. It sort of struck me that, you know, Debs knows a lot about me, my dementia, my, my history, my family. Do you know, I even though she's my best friend, and I can say that, and I don't think anybody is a friendship was ever compared to Deb, I know very little about her because I can't remember about her. So I know very little history about Deb. I know that she's um, she's with Martin and where she lives, but I don't know what she did as a job. I know very, very little, and I'm sure that she's told me about her parents, and I don't even know if she's got brothers or sisters, because my memory doesn't allow me to have that in there. So it's a very... Very strange to explain that, you know what I mean? It, Peter, it's I it's not one-sided, it's just the element of not knowing. But I think that shows what a solid friendship it is because, yes, it, w it would be good if you remembered things about me, but I know you're not going to. Mm. But it doesn't matter because you clearly are friends with me for who I am. You have some emotional, instinctive it's, connection. It's a, it's a, it's a, a use of, of feeling as something. I, yeah. I don't remember quite so much with my mind. I, I remember more with my heart, I suppose, if that mm. makes sense. It um, does, yes. That's something that's locked away in a little vault that dementia can't quite crack open yet. Yes. Um, and that's a key thing. It can take my memories, but it can't take my feelings. Yes. And I think that makes it a better friendship in a way because all the other mm. things are superficial. It doesn't matter that mm. you don't know about mm. my parents mm. or whatever, mm. but you know instinctively that we are friends. And mm. oh, yeah. I think yeah. that's, that's a friendship. That's mm. all it needs, mm. really. It could be one-sided because I do know a lot about you. Um, but it, it doesn't, <laughs> and I will, one day I will use it, but yeah. it doesn't feel... Heaven forbid you would ever think of writing a book and putting it all in. <laughs> good, good heavens, no. But, but I think that's what makes it beautiful in a way, that we're friends in this slightly weird way. How fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, mm. it is. It's, it's, it, you couldn't actually make it up if, if you try. And, and if well, I, I could, knew I'm when I was, yes, you could, if I knew when I was diagnosed that all of this was going to happen and that life, you know, wouldn't be, it wasn't over. Life with dementia was different and mm. not over. Then that would have saved me and my family so much pain mm. in the first 
12 months. Yeah. So if people are listening to this, I think the key thing is life's not over. It is different. And don't worry about things you can't do. Focus on the things you can do because you will always be able to do something. Not everybody is good at everything, but everybody is good at something. Pick those good things and use them and live your life and just, just do it. It's as simple as that. I think we're going to end there, Peter, because that's, I can't think of anything better. I can't think of anything else to say. <laughs> I'm completely, completely wordless. You've rendered the speechless. No. Thank you very much, both of you. Thank you. What a fantastic couple. The cycling duo of Peter Berry and Deb Bunt reminds us just how important friendship is. We're back to human connections, of course. The past difficult year has brought to life the old adage that you don't appreciate the true value of something until it's taken from you. We've all missed other people. We need them and they need us. We give and we take, we annoy, irritate and exasperate, but together we're so much better and stronger. Peter's dementia story goes from darkest despair to glorious positivity. Cycling has given me my life, he says. Not everybody's good at everything, but everybody's good at something. The trick is, I suppose, to find out what that is. With every spin of the wheel and pump of the pedals, Peter cycles down his dementia, and Deb, the stranger he met by chance in a cycling shop in Saxmundham, is there beside him, or possibly gasping a few metres behind him. But the point is, she's there to listen, to remember, to take down his words when he quickly forgets them. And he in turn provides map reading skills, puncture repair kits, and a fresh view on life. Slow Puncture is a really good book. It's just like the pair of them. Down to earth, funny, with some brilliant and actually pretty deep observations. But meeting Deb and Peter, even virtually, as I did, is even better. Support and advice is available at www.youngdementiauk.org. And finally, if you've enjoyed listening today, I would be very, very grateful if you would rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform or channel you're listening to it on, as this will help spread the word about the podcast and then together perhaps we can further diminish the stigma, increase the knowledge and quash the myths surrounding dementia.